0: Alternative perspectives and genuine collaboration. Our special guest today is Joanne Lippman, best-selling author of Next: The Power of Reinvention in Life and Work. And the number one best-selling, that's what she said, what men and women need to know about working together. And that's gonna be our next ROG episode. <laughs> Joanne is a veteran journalist. She served for over 22 years at the Wall Street Journal, starting as an intern, then reporter, editor, and created the household favorite weekend journal. The New York Times described her role at the journal as the innovator-in-chief. She led as the founding editor-in-chief of Condé Nast Portfolio Magazine, and most recently was the chief content officer at Gannett Editor-in-Chief of USA Today and USA Today's Network. Those organizations earned six Pulitzer Prizes during Joanne's tenure. She's also an on-air CNBC contributor and a Yale University journalist lecturer and a host of other things. Side note, USA Today was was my first on my career journey. So we have that in common. Currently, Joanne is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. She and her husband live in New York City and are parents of two adult children. What I appreciate most about you, Joanne, is your encouragement. You share wisdom and practical, actionable advice in ways that are really helpful and generous. Thank you so much for being a guest on ROG.
1: Thank you, Shannon. It's so good to be with you. Thank you. It's great to be
0: with you too. I've had the opportunity to meet you several times. You are a speaker at the WIC Network Annual Leadership Conference two years in a row, which has been great. And I just your message is so resonant and timely. I think it's a really important message for us to... To learn about. And of course, there will be links in the show notes so everybody can learn more about you and get access to your book. So I'm curious to learn about the reason why you wrote the book, Next The Power of Reinvention in Work and Life.
1: Yeah, thanks. So for those who haven't yet read it, and I, and I hope you all have a chance to read it, um, what Next is, is a deeply reported guide to navigating change in how we live, how we work, how we lead. Um, It's backed by hundreds of interviews that I did with people who had gone through every conceivable kind and type of reinvention and major changes in their life. Everything from changing your career, changing your life, coming back from failure. And then I I backed that up with um, the latest research coming out of academia, coming from scientific labs. And in addition to that, what I did is I put it together and looked at sort of the commonalities and 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 out of that came up with what I call the reinvention roadmap, which is four steps that everyone goes through when they're going through any significant change. And I end the book with a dozen strategies because to your point, it's so important to not just understand the mechanism of change, but also to figure out how can I be best equipped to go through whatever is that is going on in my life right now and how do I go through that and what are some strategies that can help? How did writing this
0: book Utilize some of your strengths, Joanne, because this sounds like a daunting task, right? You have these hundreds of interviews, all this data. You're a journalist, so you know how to tell a story. I mean, how? What? What strengths of yours were utilized in the creation of this
1: work? Well, this went to straight to the heart of both my professional strengths, but also my my own personal experience, right? If you think about that. So, professionally, as a journalist, I love nothing more. I am such a nerd. I love nothing more. First of all, in a immersing myself in all the data and the research, and then in going out and talking to people and hearing their stories, I have I have always been an endlessly curious person and I love to hear everybody's stories. And so that part was just pure joy. It was really fun for me. It was also my pandemic project when, during the (laughs) pandemic, um, this was the genesis of NEXT is, if you recall, as we all do, in March of 2020 and the world shut down. Mm -hmm. And all of us were essentially, anyone who had any sort of ability to work remotely went remote, as did I and my entire family. And we were at that moment of uncertainty where Mm -hmm. you realize that we don't know how long this is gonna last. We don't know what the world's going to look like when it's over. We don't know how we're going to get to whatever this new normal is. And I literally woke up in the middle of the night one one night, and I was like, "There's no guide to help us get to whatever comes next." I want to write that, and so I, yeah. I really immersed myself in the reporting um, and in you know all of the interviewing. Uh, but at the same time, as I said, it's also informed by my my own personal journey. You know, I'm a longtime journalist. I've gone through, as all of us do, like a lot of really significant changes in my life, both professionally, you know, professionally, I started out in the analog age. (laughs) So I was responsible as an editor-in-chief for pulling uh, mainstream legacy media companies into the digital age, but also personally, you know, I, uh, 9-11, I was in the World Trade Center experiencing things that no person should ever have to see. I was one of the lucky ones. I got out, I'm here. Uh, But it it was a galvanizing and really truly traumatic experience to be surrounded by that kind of destruction and death. Less than a year later after that, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I went through two surgeries, six months of chemo, another two months of radiation. And my kids were very, very young at the time. And those are the kinds of experiences yours will be different those who are listening yours will be different but we all go through these really life changing experiences and i really wanted to understand you know how do we navigate that how do we get through that and how do we come out better on the other side?
0: Thank you for sharing that background. And just And one of the things I want to talk about in our conversation today is the post-traumatic growth. Yes. I, that's fascinating insight that you have shared. And it's just, I've not stopped thinking about it since then. Um, so how did you report the book? What was your process?
1: So the first thing that I did was um, on two tracks. I, I started, I put out the word, looking for people who had been through some kind of significant change. And I i came into this with completely open mind. Like I had no idea what I was going to find, but I wanted to find people who had gone through different kinds of reinventions, right? People who had completely switched careers, people who had experienced horrible trauma, but came back stronger or who came back from failure, very different kinds of life experiences. I was also interested in people who had aha moments that changed their lives. So it was a very broad spectrum. So I started out by just looking at different kinds of stories. And I I started, I reached out to a wide circle of people. I used social media. And then there were people who I had interviewed in the past who had undergone tremendous change. One of the first people I spoke to actually was James Patterson, who listeners will know of as the best-selling author of all time. Um, you know, Along Came a Spider and all those other hundreds, hundreds of bestselling books. Uh, mm-hmm. But I first met James Patterson more than 30 years ago when I was a young Wall Street Journal reporter and I covered the advertising business. And he was the ad guy who wrote the Burger King copy. That's what James Patterson started out as. And he was a struggling writer. And back then, when I went to go interview him, I remember this so vividly, I went to go interview him about the Burger King account. And instead of talking about the Burger King account, he said to me, you know, what I really want to be is a novelist. And I remember thinking to myself at that time, like, yeah, sure. Like you and everybody else wants to be a novelist. Sure. But he actually, he gave me at that moment, he said, no, I got a book published. And he hands me this hardcover, which I tucked away in my bag and kind of forgot about it. A few weeks later, I take this book out and read it. And I don't remember all of the details, but I recently went back and dug up the reviews of that book that he gave me back then. And the Kirkus review, the first two words were abysmally dumb. (laughs) The last two words of that review were, deserves drowning. I mean, it was just the most atrocious review. But instead of being discouraged, he used that as fuel. And I went back to him now 30 years later and said, walk me through. How did you go from that disastrous beginning to the most successful person you are now and completely changing your career. And he did walk me through what he went through. And it was not a straight line, which was one of the mottos of, of next is it's not a straight line. Uh, there's a lot of struggling that goes on in between. But he was so gracious. It was during the shutdown where I got back in touch with him. And he's like, I got nothing else to do. You know, there's a wonderful woman in the book. Named Marla Ginsberg, who listeners may know, if you ever tune into Home Shopping Network, she is the biggest shopping the biggest star on Home Shopping Network. She she has a, a design label called Marla Wynn, Marla Wynn Layers. And but she had been a fired television executive who didn't know how to sew and was able to completely reinvent her life. Um, but I found her because simply I had put a post on Facebook, and one of my Facebook friends said, Oh my gosh. You need to know this woman, Marla. And she did an introduction. So it was really interesting how the people I came across came through so many different channels. It was really, really fun. What was Marla's reinvention story? Marla had an amazing story. She was a very successful TV executive and like a production person. She had a big house and the nanny and the pool, the whole works. And she lost her job very suddenly. And then there was a writer's strike. And so there was no way to get a new job. At this point, she was over 50 years old. Um, She lost her house. I mean, the first thing she did was, you know, she fired the nanny and closed the pool and gave back the leased car, all of those things. Ultimately, she lost her house. Mm. She goes to, she, she doesn't know anything about sewing or anything, but she, she said she goes to Sears. She says, first time I ever went to Sears. She says, she buys a sewing machine. She Googles, how do I use a sewing machine? Um, and she starts out in her garage, like making designs and showing them to her friends who don't know yet that she is basically, you know, lost all her money and everything. She ultimately, she moves to Canada, which is cheaper to try and like get her design business going. Um, She reached out to what I call weekend dormant dyes, people who she sort of knew tangentially and was able to kind of start her business. But then her son is diagnosed with cancer, which was horrendous, her teenage son. He's being treated in Amsterdam with her, where her ex-husband lives. So she goes to Amsterdam. I mean, she had this horrendous struggle, period of struggle. But what's so interesting is she said when she went to Amsterdam and had to leave everything behind and was so focused on her son and her whole life was only focused on him, she had a creative blossoming, as she says, and really came up with the ideas that became this hugely successful clothing line. Which, by the way, the research tells you is actually, there's been a lot of research that's been done on if the, the one of the best ways to make a change in your life is to actually make a change in your locality. You don't have to move to Amsterdam, but it's traveling, it's getting away, it's taking a break from your normal life. And, and they do find that if you move to a new location, that you think differently and that you have different ideas and um, that there very often is a blossoming of creativity, which I found really interesting.
0: Is there an, a period of time that you need to be away?
1: Well... I have a, a chapter in next and it's uh, the, the uh, basically the text, the subtext of it is you deserve a break today borrowing from me.
0: Yes. I love that chapter.
1: <laughs> um,
0: it's so good.
1: It's so good because the culture that we live in is so much about head down, focus, focus, focus. If you have a problem, you just have to keep going. That is our culture. I am guilty of that. I bet a lot of people who are listening are guilty of that. It's it but all of the research shows that the best way to be creative to have a breakthrough aha moment is to take a break mm-hmm. and it you, this could be a break that is you know you need to take breaks during the day you need to take your vacations there's research that shows people who take their vacations are promoted more quickly than those who leave their vacation days on the table so everybody take your vacation days mm-hmm. um, what you need to do, you need to take your weekends. What the research shows us is that when you're completely focused all the time on a project, you get stuck and you then your wheels start spinning. And it's only when you take a break, this is why we have aha moments. When you take a break and you turn off what's called the executive function of your brain, which corrals all of our thoughts and keeps us focused, when you turn that off, all of these sort of disparate thoughts that are swirling around in your brain can come together in very unique ways. And that's they emerge as aha moments. And what's really cool about that, that is why your aha moments never come when you're focusing. They come when you're sleeping, exercising, cleaning your house, doing anything but work. That's where you get your aha moments. Um, And also your aha moments, a, a key attribute of aha moments is that they feel right they feel correct and they feel new. And that's generally because they are, because they're not, it feels like it's been like handed to you. Some people say it's like a religious experience. It's been handed to you, but in fact, it comes out of your own head. And that's why it feels right. And it feels good. And it feels original because your brain, while you're not thinking about it, consciously has put together all of these all this knowledge and expertise and ideas that you have that are floating around in separate parts of your brain and they put it together in a really novel way. That was such an
0: empowering chapter to read. It's chapter seven. It's called Stop What You're Doing. You Deserve a Break Today. Such a good one. I love your productivity hack too, which I want you to share with our listeners. But it was that that, that aha reading your words was around like you have this wisdom You have all of these little elements, all these data points, and that by taking a break, by stepping away, you get to, you know, not consciously, but those start to connect themselves. So something I'm sending to you, Joanne, and I know for a lot of people, you're just listening to this, um, is something that I created a long time ago called Empower in the Shower. And it's uh, uh, yes. thought-provoking questions and then this like waterproof pad. And then of course this little ducky just because it's cute. Um, and it's because yeah. so many of our best thoughts happen in the shower. And when I was reading your uh, your wisdom here, I thought, oh my gosh, this is why. This is because your brain is not like, you know, what do I have to do in here today? Right? We're on autopilot. So we have that available brain power to use for something else. Yes.
1: So true. So true. The um, Aaron Sorkin, the great screenwriter, has said he takes seven showers a day sometimes because when he's got writer's block, when he's writing his screenplays, the best thing he can do is just like, ah, relax, take a shower. Yeah.
0: Could you share your productivity hack just while we're on this topic?
1: I would love to. Okay. So my productivity hack, which... By the way, I have to give credit to the person who shared it with me is a guy named Tony Schwartz. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, Tony used to be a journalist. He actually co-authored Trump's The Art of the Deal, later became a big Trump critic.
0: Right. He's the power of full engagement, the Human Performance Institute, right? He's phenomenal.
1: Exactly. So Tony, I ran into when I was working on my first book. This next is my third book. When I was working on my first book, I I was experiencing this terrible, terrible writer's block. And uh, after four days of staring at my cursor on a blank page on my computer, um, I had to go on a business trip. Uh, I was going to Davos um, for the World Economic Forum. And I'm in the middle of the, I'm just like so stressed. And I found myself on the plane sitting next to Tony. And I'm just complaining about how stressed I am about, about my writer's block. And he passed along this this, this hack, which I will now share with you. And I found out there's scientific benefits behind it as well. So this hack is, when you are struggling with anything, focused on anything, you focus 100% on it for 90 minutes. It's called the 90-minute rule. For 90 minutes, turn off your phone, turn off all your alerts. You can do nothing but focus on whatever this work product is. But at the end of 90 minutes, you must stop. It is a hard stop. And then you have to take a break and you can do anything you want during the break. You can shower, you can eat, you can exercise, whatever, it doesn't matter. Then you come back and do it again, 90 minutes. And then you take a break again. You will find, first of all, you cannot do this for more than three times, three 90 minute periods, total of four and a half hours. And you will find that it is far more productive than if you had sat there for 12 hours. It is so much more productive. And the reason is, when you do your 90 minutes with a hard stop, that artificial deadline just makes you, like, for example, if you're writing a memo, right? It just makes you get something down on paper by the deadline. And then when you step away, you suddenly, that gives you the perspective. So when you come back again, you're like, oh, okay, I can see this with fresh eyes. It turns out Mm -hmm. that there's actually scientific backing for this. So a lot of people are familiar with that 10,000 hours to become an expert, which was Malcolm uh, Gladwell popularized that. But the actual research that that 10,000 hours came from, it was a, a psychologist named Kay Anders Erickson. Erickson's actual research was done on expert violinists. And there were three elements to, that they, that 10,000 hours was only one mm-hmm. of three elements that you needed to, to truly become the expert. Um, the second was that when, you, when they practice, they practice very deliberately, like the focus that I'm talking about. And the third is they took breaks after 90 minutes. These expert violinists only practiced four and a half hours a day, not eight hours a day. And they would do it in 90 minute chunks and then take a break. So all of those elements, three elements together, it's not just 10,000 hours in a row. Really important to take your breaks. And to focus.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And as a viola player, were you like, I wish I knew this?
1: Yes. (laughs) Right? When you're an expert (gasps) in something, aren't you like,
0: oh, this would have been... Yeah,
1: absolutely. It would have been. I used to do three hours in a row. I'm like, that was dumb. Like that was... I I would have been a much better player. (laughs) If I broke it up even better,
0: right? Yeah. You can't even imagine. But I, I really want my kids in particular to listen to this episode and for you to share this hack because it's just so important. Cause I think when you care about something, for somehow we have this belief that if we just lock in and we just stay focused and we, you know, it's the tenacity of just sticking with it. And it's that's just not true. It's not how we're wired. The science backs it up. You've backed it up, you've live you're living proof. It got you unlocked to, sure to get did. that writer block going again and we've all benefited from that and it is a so great the, one
1: to share with your kids it really is i shared it immediately with my kids and to, to tell them like wait you're writing a term paper whatever like this is the way to do it you're studying for a test yes. yep this is the way to go
0: and and have they taken your advice um have they radically <laughs> okay i think that's the best idea. As, as with anything <laughs> <laughs> right every once in a while yeah, yeah I'll take it <laughs> yeah yeah sometimes we just want to keep doing it the hard way <laughs> uh, so in this current book which I just love and I want everybody to get the title next the power of reinvention in work and life and work I like how you put life first yep. I think that you did that intentionally, intentionally knowing you right yep. okay Um, So in this book, you talk about these stages of reinvention, search, struggle, stop, solution. Would love for you to walk us through that. Sure,
1: sure. I call that the reinvention roadmap, the four steps, search, struggle, stop, solution. So the search is the first step. And that is when you are collecting information and experiences that are ultimately going to lead to a transition of some sort, a change of some sort. And whether it's changing careers, changing your life. The cool thing about step one, the search, is that it's very often unintentional. So you have no idea that this random hobby or random interest that you have is ultimately going to change your life. The second step is the struggle. Okay, so the struggle, this is the one we don't like to talk about uh, but everybody goes through it. The struggle is when you start to disconnect from your previous life, you haven't quite figured out where you're going to end up. And it is, it's very uncomfortable. And it really feels like you're maybe standing still, you're stuck, right? It just, it's a very uncomfortable feeling, which is why we don't like to talk about it. And we don't often like to admit that we're going through it. But everybody does. And in fact, my research shows that. That struggle part is actually the most important part of the process. And that even though it feels like you're stuck, you're actually, subconsciously, you're actually, there's a lot of important work going on underneath the surface that will propel you forward. You just don't feel it yet. And that stage doesn't doesn't end very often until you reach this third stage, the stop. So the stop is what pulls you out of your routine. It's something that stops you in your tracks, literally. And it could be something like what we were just talking about, like just stepping away, taking a vacation or, or taking a shower. But very frequently, it is something that you choose. It could be, I quit my job, I get married, I'm having a baby, I'm moving, right? It could also be something imposed on you. I spoke to several people for my book, Next, who had like a, a serious illness that was diagnosed, like a cancer diagnosis. It stops you in your tracks, but what it does is that is what you need to pull you out of your daily routine, to synthesize everything you've just gone through and to figure out like to get new perspective. And that new perspective allows, that's what takes you to that fourth step, the solution. That fourth step, the solution is where whatever it is that you're pivoting to. And I found that pretty much everyone will go through those steps probably more than once in your life. Sometimes you do, you know, one step forward and then you got to go backwards a step. But generally, those are the the stages that you will hit to to go through the transition. That I I just want to emphasize, though, that that middle part, that is the part that is so important. And I want to emphasize that because I hear this from readers every single day. I'm hearing from people who say, oh, my God, I was struggling. I am struggling. And I feel so alone. And I thought it was just me. I felt like there's something wrong with me. And thank you, because now I realize it's it's actually, there's nothing wrong with me, that this is part of the process. And I really want those who read next, I want to be able to normalize that process so that we don't feel so hopeless. So we understand we're not alone and there's nothing wrong with us if we're feeling that way.
0: That is so compassionate and helpful and just really meaningful to, to read this from an expert like you who has done all this research and even in your own life experience, you know, you shared a highlight reel of that at the opening of our conversation um, for you to give them place to be seen, understood, and like it's almost like good news, right? Like, yeah. like yay, you're, you're stuck. That's great because that means you're in the middle. Just keep going, keep going, keep going. You're, you're, <laughs> is that what you going. would recommend for people, Joanne? Like when they are feeling that way, what what is your encouragement to people who are catching your book or speaking to you? In the midst of that struggle?
1: So, I have, like I said, I, in, I have a toolkit of a dozen strategies in the back. And there are several that are really specific to when you're in that period of struggle, which, which we can talk about. Um, but uh, one, one of my favorites is to find an, what, what I call an expert companion. So, expert companion, this, this is a term that was actually coined by psychologists who work with trauma survivors. Uh, But an expert companion is someone, I think we all need that person. And it is somebody who has a really good sense of who you are, who can reflect back to you, your innate strengths, talents, progress you've made. They have just a better, they have a real perspective, an outside perspective, but they understand who you are. And the key with this expert companion is they don't necessarily give you advice, but what they can be is a reality check. We all need that, right? We all have innate strengths and talents that we don't even recognize uh, because they are so natural to us. Or if we do recognize them, we're like, we discount them. We're like, everybody can do that, right? Like, sure. Like, so they're able to give you a realistic sense of yourself. And so if you're struggling and you feel like you're not getting anywhere, they're the person who can reflect back to you, you know, hey, actually, you know, we, let me tell you X, Y, and Z that you've made this progress, that you have this strength, you have this talent, look what you've already done. It is very, very helpful to do that.
0: That is so helpful. And on that, that uh, what I mentioned earlier about the post-traumatic growth, could you share us a little bit about what you learned there about growth after trauma?
1: Absolutely. This was so eye-opening. So we're all familiar with post-traumatic stress which probably many of us are experiencing in the wake of COVID, honestly. But psychologists very recently, just recent years, have found that people who do go through extreme trauma, a huge proportion of them have what is called post-traumatic growth as well. So post-traumatic growth is where you come from a trauma, you make something positive, not that the trauma was positive, but that you find a positive direction. There's a what's called a post traumatic growth inventory. It's 21 statements mm. that they run by people who've been through trauma, and a lot of them are things like, "I have um, a new," um, I'm, "I'm exploring new opportunities in life," "I'm stronger than I thought I was," "I'm ready for new adventures and a new path in my life." A lot of it has to do with reinvention, with with change, and it's absolutely. Fascinating to see, and this, the, these trauma psychologists um, who, who recognize this, they also found that very often what helps somebody get over that hump is that expert companion who can reflect back to them, sort of, you know, where you've been, where you're going. The, what's really interesting, um, one of my prime examples of post-traumatic growth, and I obviously reported this before the, the recent war with the Israel-Gaza war, but um, there's an Israeli woman who was uh, more than a decade ago, was the victim of a terror attack by some Hamas militants and almost died. they, they it was a machete attack. She was um, left for dead on a hiking trail. And she barely, barely, barely survived. what it took years for her physical wounds to heal. She obviously has post-traumatic stress. But what she did instead of like just turning her life into revenge against these Palestinian men, what she did is she created a a, a non-profit to help Palestinian children. And it's just remarkable. Like she just wanted to pay it forward and say, you know, these men who were her attackers were murderers. And uh, but she said, but there's these children, these are innocent children. And like, let's give them an opportunity and so she created um, this nonprofit with a Palestinian friend. And so it's just remarkable to me that you can turn such an awful tragedy mm-hmm. into something so positive. And, and yeah. we see that in so many ways. I mean, it, it's part of what you see with you know, yeah. people who have been through an illness or family members been through an illness who then want to go right. and become you know volunteer and to, to help raise money or to start a nonprofit for it. Um, but I think all of us have had some sort of traumas that we can then, you know, look to what can we do? What what can we do to make a positive difference afterward? And how might we change our lives afterward? Yeah.
0: What an incredible story of generosity and that thoughtfulness, like to be able to scale out and think, okay, how is that relatable? How might this be useful to someone else? You know, what else does this help me understand? and then even looking at your own resourcefulness right in terms of like the role that you could play in some kind of growth in that area being the change that you want to see
1: it was so powerful also because you know as the psychologists will say like the, there's nothing good about the trauma this is not to say anything good about the trauma like it would we don't want that to happen But what's amazing is the resilience of people. And actually they say it's not even resilience because resilience is, is like a rubber band. You snap back to where you were. And what they say is you can't snap back to where you were, but what you can do is push forward, right? You can go forward and that's the key to post-traumatic growth is you're moving forward, right? Right. And I, I just think it's an absolutely beautiful sentiment, but also, again, it's research-backed, it's scientifically-backed. And um, and what these researchers have been working on are like, what can we do to encourage post-traumatic growth for people who have survived these traumas?
0: What a, what a new, great perspective to have and a way to think about pain in a different way. Um, you know, you've interviewed so many people, you're a research minded person, you look for like themes or patterns. Um, so what patterns have you recognized in, if if we could just use the, the word generosity, right? The, the willingness and interest in being a positive force for good, helping others. I mean, what, what patterns have you recognized about people who you would describe as generous?
1: I would actually speak to the people who have made sort of major changes across the board. What I notice with people who were able cuz this is the probably the number one question that I get when I'm out and doing talks is, you know, like how do I start? Like what do how what what separates those who are able to make that big change in their life from those of us who feel like we're stuck and we're not we're not getting anywhere, we're afraid, right? And obviously, you know, a big piece of this is fear, fear of change. And that's why I wrote the book to give you all the steps you need to kind of jumpstart that. But what I found, there is a quality that I found that is really lends itself for people who go through any kind of the changes that we've talked about. And, and that is an openness, an openness to following a different direction, which is really interesting, right? So there's an openness that they have. There was a... Um, uh, an openness to, okay, I my I thought my goal was A, but maybe it should actually be B or Z. There was a really interesting piece of research. I have a chapter on, on gut feeling and should you follow your gut feeling. The short answer is yes, in most cases, not in every case though. <laughs> um, be, and the reason is because gut feeling, like those aha moments, gut feeling is actually based on information that you already have. It's based on pattern recognition of patterns that you've already experienced in your life. So you, uh, it, it feels like you don't know where it came from this gut feeling, but it actually comes from your own experience, which is why it's very often right. But there was research that was done on people who had a gut feeling that led them to change their careers. And they were looking for commonalities. And that was the single most common element among all of these people was they said they were open to change. They were open to listening to their gut. Very often you have that gut, you have that aha moment and you're like, yeah, that can't be right. And you want to push it away. These are people who said I was open to it. I wanted to listen to it. And and I was open to following that that new path. Um, That was really eye-opening for me because it made me realize that I am one of those people who is sometimes like so focused in a lane, right? Like so many of us are. Like there's the gold star that I'm going for, and here's the lane to get there. And it made me realize that very often it's it's super important to stop thinking about the lane, to take away you know those blinders, and just be open to sort of swerving in a in a different direction that could end up being more fulfilling. Mm,
0: that is so powerful. And encouraging. It's, it's encouraging for people to think, okay, this isn't the, where it stops. This is actually where it starts, right? You're listening to yourself. You're blossoming from that. Um, and, and I think your book goes through a variety of different examples. Like you have range, Joanne, range, right? With these examples of, of really like like the process that you have outlined for us, like that's the searching the struggling, stop, and then coming up with the solution. Would love for you to just give us the highlights of the Plato story, chapter nine, <laughs> the lessons from Plato. That's just remarkable. I
1: love this one too, because the, this reinvention roadmap that we're talking about search, struggle, stop, solution, it also goes for corporate reinvention. And yep. so um, the story of Plato uh, <laughs> is that Plato actually started out as a household cleaner. It was called kutal wallpaper dough, and it was used back in the 30s and 40s and 50s by, um, it was used to clean, it was like a putty that came in a can. And this is back in the days when everybody had coal stoves, so there was a lot of soot, and they had wallpaper that was literally made out of paper. So you couldn't scrub it because it would it would scrub off. So wallpaper dough was invented. So you roll it along your wallpaper to get rid of the coal soot. And of course, in the 50s, what happened? Coal stoves went out of fashion and everybody started getting gas and electric. And they didn't need Kutal wallpaper dough. And it was the primary product of a family-owned company. And this company was going to go bankrupt. And the beauty of this is, so the guy who owns the company is desperate. He literally is like, I'm going to mortgage my house. I'm going to have to shut down the business. I got to fire all my relatives who all work for the business. And he's desperate. And he gets a phone call from his sister-in-law who lives in Jersey, New Jersey. And the sister-in-law is a nursery school teacher and she says, I've got the solution for you. She said, it turns out you can take your wallpaper dough and make little figures out of it and bake them and it's like modeling clay. You should turn this into modeling clay. And literally he did, he sat at his kitchen table, this guy, he, he hired a chemist who came in. They, all they had to do was they took out the cleaning product, the soap from, from Kutal wallpaper dough and they added the scent that we still know today, that scent. We all know the the Play-Doh smell. (laughs) We added that in. And at first, they didn't have any colors at the beginning. But basically, it was the same factory. It was the same can. He just put a different label on it. The sister-in-law and her husband, who was a doctor in New Jersey, came up with the name Play-Doh. In fact, The the guy who owned the company, he was going to call it something like something really dorky about like something, 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 rainbow modeling clay. It was some long, dorky name. And the doctor, the brother in law, uh, who's still alive, he's almost 100 years old. I interviewed him. You did? You interviewed him? He was amazing, as sharp as could be. And he's the one who told me this story. The guy is almost 100 years old. Um, He's so awesome. But he said, He's the one who actually came up with the name Play-Doh. And they the, the, he, they called the brother-in-law and they, they said, we have a better name for you. Um, and the doctor says, doctor said to me, he said, I've written a lot of words in my day, but only two of them became famous. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that. And even in the book, you have a visual of like, the search was the catal, The struggle was that yeah. being extinct. That it was no longer needed. Then the stop was... The sister-in-law, right? And then the solution is this new product, Play-Doh.
1: That... And and by the way, the sister-in-law also as that played the role of expert companion, right? She's the person who knew the product and knew the company and knew the head of the company, but also had an outsider perspective to say, Hey, you never thought about this, but let me tell you, like, here's here's something you can do with this product, right?
0: What a brilliant story. And then there's a segue to Viagra in that chapter and we're just going to leave it there and let our listeners (laughs) go and find that little gem for themselves. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So recap, some takeaway tips that I heard from what you shared. There's a ton here. Um, One is just (laughs) buy this book and read the stories and then all of the tools in the back. Uh, One that you talked about, I said, uh, use rejection as fuel. You know, like in your earlier stories and when you were just sharing about uh James Patterson, you know, being rejected and just to think, you know, how might that be the catalyst that we need just to to yes. keep going? Uh change your location, change your life, you know, and just uh put yourself in a new space, let yourself think. Yes. take a break. Big it's one. It's a big one. Take a break, use the 90 minute rule. Um, And then using your steps here. So number one is search, collect information. I think that requires curiosity. Two, struggle. It's part of the human condition, but be curious about it, right? I think to like approach your struggle with curiosity, talk about it too. I think you encourage us to talk about it. Um, And then the third step being stop. So pulling yourself out of your routine, just you know, full stop. And then the solution is like, where, where are you pivoting to that curiosity of like, what, where might this lead me? And then the last part you just shared about the openness to follow a different direction. Like that was like the theme of all the people that you spoke to. Anything else you would add to that, Joanne? Yeah,
1: I would add two really quick things. One is when you do have a goal, share your goal. A lot of research on this. Mm -hmm. If you Write it down, you're more likely to do it, but you're even more likely to achieve it if you share your goal and your progress with somebody else. And somewhat related, but um, also hugely important, is reach out to your weak and dormant ties. So weak ties, people you don't know that well, dormant ties, people you've lost touch with. Those are the people in your wider network. They are going to expose you to new ideas, new opportunities, you know, new directions in a far, far, far more than those people in your close network. The people closest to you, you all know the same thing. The people in your larger network give you different information and different opportunities. LinkedIn actually did, a, did research on this um, to find out where did LinkedIn members get their new jobs. And the, the majority of them got their jobs through these weak or dormant ties, not from their closest network.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. So where can people find out more information and get access to your book?
1: Sure, sure. So you can find me at joannelipman.com. That is my website where you can find information about me and you can reach me. I read every reader letter. Um, And you can follow me on social media and you can find next The Power of Reinvention in Life and Work at any bookstore. You can find it on Amazon, but I always, always encourage people, um, to go to your local independent bookseller. We'd love to support independent bookstores.
0: Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. And as you so kindly wrote in my book, you said, here's to your next adventure. So here's to your next adventure, Joanne. Thank you for being you.
1: Thank you, Shannon. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's great to be with you.